Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue this morning uh, laying the foundation or explaining the foundation for Paul's exhortations here in Colossians chapter 3, 18 and 19 and, and 20 and 21 as well flow out of the foundations laid for us in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3. And so we want to uh, make certain that we're understanding the significance of that and, and where do these directives come from, these imperatives that we find in Colossians 3. What is the basis for them? Where would Paul have learned this and where did he look to call uh, both husbands and wives to live in the context in which he does in verses 18 and 19. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we have sung this morning of all the magnificent wonders of your person, um, the beauty of salvation, the work of Jesus Christ. We have read in Joel chapter 2 how our God reigns and that he will prevail and that his judgment is certain. And even in reading that, we see that you still extend mercy, you still call people to Christ, and you still call people before all these things happen to yourself, and we rejoice that we are known by you and spared these things. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a burden for the lost who live under the condemnation of which we've read. May we have a burden for them while there is yet still time. And may we be anxious and, and wanting to communicate the wonders of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us and bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would guide and direct us in your word, help us to understand these important passages. Your word is under much attack today, both externally and internally from uh, presumably people who should know better. We ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding and patience, uh, that you would help us to comprehend what you would have for us in terms of our marriages, that you would be well pleased with our marriages, that Christ would be reflected and you would be exalted in all that we do to glorify you and how we live with each other and how we love each other and how we care for each other. Forgive us for not doing those things as we ought and for failing in those regards. Help us to understand better so that we can live for you better, love each other better, exalt Christ better. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3. Let's go back and begin with verse 12 because it's so foundational to what we read in verses 18 and 19. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's not forget those very important virtues. They are so critical for us, both in terms of our life with each other in the church and our life with each other outside of the church. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. 
Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Well, this passage has become very familiar to us, and, and we've taken the time to unpackage it. We've been spending a lot, a lot of time in the book of Colossians. We have laid the foundation for the imperatives that we find in chapter 3 by looking to the doctrine, those things that would cause us to want to, with gratitude, serve the Lord. We're not doing these things in the context of what Paul outlines for us in chapter 3 to become saved or become more saved. You can't be any more saved than you are if you're in Jesus Christ. Your justification is permanent and final and complete the moment it happens, and there's nothing to add to it. So what we do with these imperatives is to have an understanding that these are the things that we do that bring glory to the Lord, that please Christ. It's our reasonable service, if you will. And what Paul tells us is that the virtues that are part and parcel of being the elect of God overflow in our lives into the lives of other people and even within the context of the home, in particular with our husband and our wife. And so we want to make certain that as the redeemed of Christ, that we're living out the reality of our new nature, of who we are in Jesus Christ with each other. We do that corporately. We do that in, 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 in the midst of ourselves how we interact with each other, and then we do it in our homes as well. And we even see that we do it externally from our homes in the context of our work and government and otherwise. Everything is about glorifying Christ. And so when we step into the realm of these do's and we understand that they're given to us as a means of helping us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, a life that is harmonious with other people, we end up doing these things out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. We've just spent the morning singing about the glories and the wonders of our salvation. Um, all of the songs that have been sung, Diane's song, all of these things drive us to the place of understanding that we are nothing without Jesus Christ and that we want to live for him because of what he has done for us. Our, our response is one of how wonderful it is that I've been saved, and because he saved me, I want to live in a manner that's pleasing to him. Unfortunately, what has happened over time is that passages like Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and the balance of this particular passage have been thrown upon the trash heap of irrelevance and antiquated ideas and, and, and sexist and um, all sorts of types of categories that the world would cast them into. And unfortunately, in many respects, the church has bought into these things. We see today in the church, the evangelical church, in the context of, of how we would identify ourselves within that broader realm of churches, egalitarianism being asserted and usurping the ideas that are communicated in Scripture and undermining God's foundations and creative mandates. And so what happens is that we then rob ourselves of the joy and the peace and the comfort that is promised, and we also rob God of what he requires of us. We say to him, no, what you've said to us is inadequate. I don't want to do it that way. There's a better way. I think Oprah has a better idea than you do, God. Gloria Steinem is far more smarter than you are. I'm going to do what she says. Let's follow the National Organization of Women instead of Holy Writ. 
And that creeps into the church. And I will say, say to you that the disparaging ideas and that the, the attitude that many approach these passages with, in particular verse 18, it's, it's the hotbed text of this particular chapter, do so on the basis of what the world has to say about it. And the influence has been great in the church in that respect. And it's unfortunate because God has a creative mandate for marriage. The very first thing that we see in the book of Genesis is the idea of communicating the importance of this particular union. It's God-ordained, it's God-created, and it's for His glory. And there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And so when you step in, as I said before, ladies, as you're stepping into verse 18, you're stepping off of the foundation of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. If you approach that passage any other way, you're going to go into it with the wrong mindset. Now, I want to say something. You know that I have a special affinity for the challenges that we face as Christians, and that the importance of the Christian mind is of paramount importance in Scripture. We are to uh, worship the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul makes repeated emphasis on the use of the Christian mind. Peter does the same thing. We see a an emphasis on the idea of our thoughts being challenged. Even here in the Colossian church, we have a false teacher who is directing people to think in a way that is contrary to Scripture. And so, ladies and men, too, you're going to have to engage your minds and begin to form your mind around what God says. That is what you're called to do. That's what Christians do. Paul would challenge the, church, the churches to, to take thoughts captive. That is to take philosophical ideas and messages and information that was coming to them and say, does this square with God's word? What did Jesus Christ say about these things? What does God's word communicate about what a marriage ought to look like in my relationship with my husband and my wife? That is what governs your thoughts. Not Oprah, not Gloria Steinem, not the National Organization of Women, not Whoopi Goldberg or The View or anything else for that matter, but God's word. So, as we, as we look at this, we want to make certain that we're understanding what God has said. So we went back to the beginning. What a great place to go, right? Back to the beginning. So let's do that. Go back to Genesis with me. And we've taken the time to unpackage Genesis chapter 1. We were looking at Genesis chapter 2. And we were looking at particular verses that speak to the issues related to the importance of, of what God has ordained in the context of relationships um, in, in between a husband and a wife. And so we want to make certain that we're comprehending what God has said about those things and not imposing upon it our own personal ideas and, and issues. That's important for us. And if we do it otherwise, we end up having the wrong focus. So Genesis chapter 2 is important. Chapter 2 is the chapter that is foremost in the mind of Christ and his apostles when they teach on marriage and the role of men and women in marriage. So keep that in mind, right? So if it's important for them, guess who it's also important for? You. Yeah, absolutely, you. And so you need to make certain you're understanding what it says. So Genesis chapter 2 is the chapter that is foremost in the minds of Christ and his apostles when they teach on marriage. So ladies, again, and men too, but in particular with regard to verse 18, 
when you look at verse 18 in Colossians 3, you know that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing that with Genesis chapter 1 and 3 clearly in mind. He's, that's how he's approaching it. His old idea of submission flows out of what God communicates to us in Genesis 1 through 3. You've got to understand that. That's the baseline. And so as you comprehend that, you go back and you say, okay, well, what does, what does Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 say about these things? Well, we've been talking about that. And so we looked at chapter 2, verse 7, in the context of the passages that are important in this discussion. Then the Lord God formed man um, uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We looked at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Then the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Verse 16, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. We talked about that. We went back and read that passage from Henry Morris's book, The Book of Beginnings, and the significance of that. It wasn't just the rib. It was the flesh and muscle associated with it. There was a true connection in the context of, of the formation of Eve out of Adam. Verse 22, The Lord God fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And what we find here then is what's communicated is important. It is the foundation. There's an emphasis here on the man in the context of the creative priority. And we understand then the origin of Eve, the first woman as well. And so we need to make certain that we're understanding that as we approach the idea or the issues related to the relationship between a husband and a wife. You've got to get this right. You get it wrong, 318 isn't going to make a lick of sense to you. And it's going to offend you. You're going to be angry about it, as many are. It's because they haven't gone back to the beginning to get it all squared up. And so we, we took from that then some important principles as it relates to um, the issue of, of Adam's uh, or the, rather the purpose of, of understanding Genesis chapter 2, one, that God made Adam the central character. We clearly see that. We see that God created Adam first. And this is important in regards to his leadership role. Adam was created first. And there's even an important emphasis on the manner in which Adam was created versus the manner in which Eve was formed. Do you see the language that's important there as well? Again, the reason that we're talking about this is to make certain that we understand the creative mandate relative to God's intended design and relationship between a man and a woman. So God made Adam the central character. God created Adam first. And we find as well that God formed the woman out of man. And we went back and looked at that passage from uh, the uh, Henry Morris book, and I would encourage you to pick that book up. It's a really a fascinating read. Um, there are many portions of it that have been beneficial to me. The discussion in the book about the pre-flood earth is really quite fascinating um, and, and really in, uh, eye-opening in many respects. 
So we see the third point, that God formed the woman out of the man. That's important. So the New Testament, why is that important? It's because the New Testament uses the fact of Adam's prior creation to demonstrate that God designed the man to be the primary leader and teacher of the family of God. So, men, did you hear what I said? The New Testament uses the fact of Adam's prior, his first creation, him being created first, to demonstrate that God designed the man to be the primary leader and teacher of the family of God. So when we talk about that idea of family, it's both in the context of his home and within the church. You will understand, too, that even Paul would say, as it relates to the women's role in the church, that he reaches back into this creative mandate to establish the order, the proper order and authority within the church, which rests in the men. Now, again, I will say this. I didn't write this. And certainly, our tendency is to say, well, I would have done it differently. Well, you probably would have. Maybe I would have, too. But you're not God, nor am I. And as Christians, we rely upon what God said and what he did. And we rest in that, knowing that he does all things well. Knowing that he does everything for a purpose that brings glory to himself and is to our benefit. So, men and ladies, think about that. Men, think about this passage. This is the predicate, this is the foundation that you're going to have to step off of into verse 19. And the question that you have to ask yourself, men, as we begin to lay the foundation for moving into that verse, are you fulfilling that creative mandate or have you given it over to your wife? Who's the spiritual leader of your home? Who spends the most time discussing issues related to scripture? Who gets the kids up? Who gets the people out for church? Who's the one leading and directing in that regard? If it's the woman, there's a problem. Now, it doesn't mean that the woman can't have a role in that, but dads, your kids need to see you taking the leadership responsibilities that you have with respect to leading your home in Christ. Your love of the word, your study of the word, your praying with them, your exaltation, your getting them up, focusing them on church. There may be other people involved in getting the kids up and ready for church, but you make it a priority that you're going to church, that nothing usurps church. Unfortunately, church has become an asterisk in many people's schedule. As a consequence of that, no one else in the house thinks it's important. If dad doesn't think it's important, your son's not going to think it's important. Or your daughter and your wife, too. So men, you're supposed to lead in this context. That's part of the creative mandate. Women, you see it in the context of your relationship with your husband. If your husband's not doing this, you have every right to challenge them. Why aren't you leading? Where are you? What are you doing? Your, your kids don't even know anything about church because you won't take us. Who are you? You can do that lovingly. But there needs to be leadership and there needs to be a recognition of the roles. And so God has set them forth. And so God formed the woman out of the man. The New Testament uses this fact of Adam's first creation to demonstrate that God designed the man to be the primary leader and teacher in his home and in the church. Fourth, we find that God created the woman for the man. Oh boy. Oh boy. God created the woman for the man. Well, we've just made half the world angry. But that's what the Bible says. 
If the first three points offend the modern sensibilities of equality, point four is totally unacceptable to just about everyone. Verse 18 of chapter 2 reads, And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God declared that Adam's singleness was not good, so God rectified the situation. He handmade a helper suitable for him. We talked about this last week, but we didn't get to finish most of it. Bearing in mind this, Eve was not another man. As I said last Sunday, he didn't make Adam a drinking buddy, a golf partner. No, he made somebody that was suitable for him in the context of of the relationship that he would ordain to exist between them. She was similar to Adam, but she was different. She was not a clone of Adam, nor was she his twin. She was unique. She had her own biology, physiology, and psychology. She was made to complement the man, to help him populate and rule the earth, and to unite with him as a loving companion partner. This is the first statement in the Bible concerning the woman's role. She is to be a help to the man. Now, there can be a lot said about this, and there's a lot of different ways that that a a wife can help her husband in the context of their relationship. We'll have more to say about that. Importantly, the emphasis in Scripture um, is one of help, support, and aid. That's what this word that's used in verse 18 ultimately means. And it's the key word. Ladies, think about this for a minute. When we look back at 2.18, in the context of this word that's being used here, it's the key word used to describe the woman's role. You will say sometimes, what is my purpose? What is my role? There it is. This is what God has ordained. And this is not a demeaning term. The world has turned this into something that it's not. And even the church has cast dispersion upon this in some ways. Churches are afraid to address it for fear it's going to cause people to get upset and leave. Pastors won't preach on it because they think people are going to be offended. And so the whole thing is avoided. As a consequence, families languish. Relationships are not where they ought to be. The divorce rate amongst Christians parallels that of the world. It's unfortunate in many ways. And I think it goes back to the beginning. If you reject the beginning, you're going to have problems down the road. You cannot reject the beginning and hope to have anything that reflects what gives glory to the Lord. And that's ultimately what our objective is. It's interesting that this word help is used to describe God himself. Does, is it not? Doesn't Scripture God simply refer to God oftentimes as one who brings help to his people? Psalm 121 does. There are other passages similar to that, speaking of God's help, his aid, his comfort, his assistance, his care. It truly is an image of God in many respects in terms of what he does for us. And so, ladies, bear in in mind these words have meaning. They are written for a purpose. We do not reject them as folklore or fable or mere poetic narrative. They are the word of God. And as the Word of God, we are called to understand them and to comprehend them and to apply them, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so your mind needs to begin to process what this role looks like and what it is that my purpose is in the context of God's creative order and mandate. 
To be a helper then means that the woman has the necessary, and think about this for a moment, so when God says that she's going to be a help to Adam, it means that he has uniquely instilled within her the ability to be, to have the necessary abilities, the necessary fitness, the necessary resources and strength to be the help that he has defined. We see this exemplified in many ways in Proverbs 31. You probably knew I was going to get there at some point. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, if you will. There's much that can be said about that. I have a particular perspective about Proverbs 31 that perhaps I'll share with you at another point in time. There was only one perfect Proverbs 31 person. I think we know who that was, Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the picture painted there is ultimately communicating to us the, the, the role, the place, the purpose of the woman in the relationship with her husband. The woman, as we find then here in Genesis, was created for whose sake? Why was Eve created? For Adam. The woman was created for man's sake, not vice versa. It's not flipped around. Paul would say the same thing in 1 Corinthians eleven nine. Eve was created out of Adam's side, speaking to her origin, and for him, which is her goal. So ladies, think about this. There is origin, there is goal. What is your origin? According to God's word, which we believe to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. That there's an origin and a goal. There's an origin and a goal. So ladies, you must think about that. Your origin, out of Adam's side. Your goal is related to serving and loving him in submission. And those are, those are words that this, the world just shrieks at. Now think about this. Think about this. As we consider this word, this language, and the framing of it in the context of God's creative mandate, we see then that the man's role is not defined in terms of the woman's. But the woman's is in terms of the man's. Adam is given specific duties related to the creation and his task within the garden. So the man's role is not defined in terms of the woman's, but by God's creative order and design. But the woman's is defined in terms of the man's. So Adam is given a global authority as it relates to God's creation and his responsibilities in it and his accountability for it. That, that rests upon the man's shoulders, ladies, not the woman's. And the woman then is brought along to aid Adam in fulfilling his creative mandate relative to his role in the world. That's important. That's very important. And it's not demeaning in any way. It's not diminished in any way. We understand, according to Scripture, for... Uh, whatever God calls us to do or be is what? It's just, it's good, it's holy, and it's desirable. He is the creator, we are the clay. And God instituted the leader-helper relationship between the first man and woman. It's interesting, too, that the Hebrew term for this phrase, suitable for him, means like him, corresponding to him, matching him, a counterpart as a consequence of that, we then understand that her nature is uniquely 
situated and made to correspond to his and to, to amplify um, and, and make him be better in terms of what he was called to do, to aid him in that respect. This shows their equality. She's not like the animals that Adam's naming in verse 19, but rather she is an image bearer of God. She bears the image of God. The animals do not. And so, ladies, as we unpackage 2.18, you then step into 3.18. Isn't that interesting? Um, That means nothing, of course, Um, but it's just interesting. Um, As you step into 3.18 out of 2.18, you do so on the basis of understanding what these words mean. So, So, ladies, as you're studying God's Word and you're wanting to understand how it is that you are to be a wife and to be a better wife and how to ask God to forgive you for not being the wife that you've been called to be, you go back into chapter 2 and you begin to unpackage the meaning of these words. This is why we preach exegetically and expositionally here at Community Bible Church, because the words are important and we do take time to unpackage them because we want to know what God wants of us. He gave these words for a reason. You then look at those words and you understand 3.18 and the whole context of everything that's in chapter 2. Now, all of a sudden, your whole framework of reference is, is completely different than the world's. And so when you have a conversation with somebody about these things, when you're talking to your ki- kids about these things, other members of your family, the culture, addressing issues in the culture, you're doing so within the framework of 2.18. You don't apologize for it. You don't come into it screwing your toe into the ground, looking at the ground, saying, oh, well, yeah, you know what the Bible says. No, you rejoice and you exalt in what God has ordained. And so for us and, and, and men too, you need to understand then that this role is, is, her role is there to supplement and to amplify what God has ordained for you. And as a consequence of that, knowing that then, and, and, and what Paul says in verse 19 is that we then love her in that context. We, we see her for who she is in the context of the creative order, and it causes our perspective to change about things. It causes us to see her uh, not as merely an object to meet our, our pleasures and desires, whatever they may be, but rather that she is there to aid and to assist and to magnify the abilities that God has already given to you to be the leader that God has called you to be. Now, now I will say this, the challenge and the temptation, we'll talk more about this, the challenge and the temptation is that that women often like to to, uh, uh, usurp the authority of the man. And men are more than often too willing to allow that to happen. You want to do it, go right ahead. That's more time to golf. More time to do whatever. But no, men, you need to understand and accept what your responsibility is. Ladies, you need to challenge your husband in the context of you being the helper who, who corresponds to him, matches him as a counterpart, and allow those two things to come together in that glorious harmony and union that is ultimately reflected in the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. So, what, what is our role as the body of Christ? We are called what? The bride of who? 
Christ. So the foundation that I've been talking about in our relationship in the context of, of husband and wife is also pictured in the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And so what is the church's role? Do you see this? What, what do we do? We, we are there to proclaim, to assist, to aid to, in the propagation of the gospel, which is the message of Christ. He is the head. We are the different pieces and parts. We've talked about that. All those parts coming together, like in a body, making the whole work together. Christ is the head. And so we see we're not the head. We may be the hand or the thumb or the big toe or the ankle or the foot or the knee or whatever it is. But there's a head. There's only one head. We all know that if you have something with two heads, it's not good. And so the same can be said for our relationship with each other, which then ultimately is the relationship that is used to demonstrate how the church works too. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And so Paul then is using this Genesis 2 mandate to maintain the distinction between the roles of men and women. The fact that the woman was made for the sake of man is proof that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. And also that the man is the head of the woman, as Paul would communicate in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, and into chapter 3 as well. And so this is the Bible's first statement. The very first statement that we have in the Bible concerning the woman's role is that she is to be a help to the man. And so already then, as you move into verse 18, we begin to understand then that you have a specifically delineated purpose and role by God. That's, that's what the scripture tells us. And so that's important. The fourth point being that God created the man for the woman. The fifth point is this, that God gave the man the right to name the woman, which is significant. Before the fall, Adam named his new companion. When Adam saw her, he said, she shall be called woman. My dad, one time preaching on this passage, said, she shall be called, wow, man. Good old dad. She shall be called woman. And this is a generic name, not a personal name. After the fall, Adam called his wife Eve, which is a personal name. There can be more said about that um, as it relates to the naming of the first woman, Eve. Why Eve? Why was her name chosen? What does that mean in the context of all that had been taking place? Remember, her, her name is given after the fall. And, and God ordains a purpose for her, and it's from her that Christ would come, as we know from uh, 315 and their significance in her naming. We'll talk more about that. It's interesting, though, that about this. The one who names a thing or a person has the authority and power to name, which Adam had. For example, parents have the authority to name their children, at least they used to. The fact that Adam names the woman further suggests Adam's special authority role within the first couple's relationship. And again, so these are, these are things that speak to uh, indications of authority and role within the marriage. So that's important. We, that's a fact, right? We want, we want facts. Facts are important. Um, 
Uh, facts are very important. Um, you know, even Joe Friday would say, just the facts, man. Um, so the facts are very important. In the courtroom, facts are very important. If you get into other things that aren't facts, you get all kinds of objections, speculation, uh, hearsay, all those things. They'll get stricken from the record even if they're not facts. No one wants to know things that aren't factual. They need the facts. And so these are the facts for us. God gave the man the right to name the woman. That's fact. The sixth point that we take away from this passage in chapter 2 is that God created the man and the woman equal in nature. Okay? So this is important. This is not about inequality. So, so for example, maybe in your mind, as I've been talking and preaching on these things this morning, you're kind of thinking in your back of your mind, well, that's not very equal. That doesn't, uh, what, that doesn't sound, I'm not sure. But, but keep this in mind, we're talking about roles, not nature. Okay? That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. God created the man and the woman equal in nature. God fashioned a partner for Adam out of his rib. This demonstrates their equality in nature. The man immediately recognized that the woman shared his same nature. So he said what? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Verse 23. She was not an inferior creature like the animals he had been busy naming up to that point in time. She was taken out of his side and thus shared equally in his nature and in the bearing of the image of God. The imago dei. That's important. The image of God. So ladies, you are created in the image of God. Adam and Eve had the same nature. That's important too because it speaks to the issue of importance of sin and the impact of the fall. It impacted Adam and Eve equally in that respect. And all people who would be then the progeny of Adam and Eve would bear their same nature and would be in need of a savior because of that. Out of Adam and Eve comes the entire human race, one race, in need of one Savior like them. That's very important. And so we see then that there is, out of Genesis chapter 2 then, we have an understanding about roles, responsibilities, God's creative mandate, and the nature of both Adam and Eve. That's incredibly important. So knowing that then, I step into, both ladies and men, into verse 18 and 19 of Colossians chapter 3, as well as the other passages that are found in the New Testament about the appropriate role of men and women in the home, in the church, in society. That's incredibly important. And so as Christians, we impact the culture in this way, following God's creative mandate. We don't alter it. We don't soft-pedal it. We don't apologize for it. I'm not going to apologize to you today for what's contained in Genesis chapter 2. I can't help it if you don't like it. I hope that you do. I hope that you love it. I hope that you cherish it. I hope that you treasure it. That's what you're supposed to do with God's word in all respects. This is what God has ordained, and it's all good. You know, in Genesis, we keep hearing this repeated phrase about the creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. This is good, too. This is what God ordered and ordained. Men, are you living up to the mandate, or have you shoved it off on your wife? That's sin, and you need to get right with God about it. Doesn't mean 
that your wife can't be a good theologian. They ought to be. It doesn't mean that your wife doesn't have spiritual gifts. They do, probably more than one, and that they ought to use them in the context of the body of Christ. But gentlemen, you need to be the one who helps her identify those things, exhorts her to use them, and encourages her in the word to give glory and honor to Christ in the context of who she is. You do that by cherishing her, by loving her as Christ has loved the church, sacrificially. Sacrificially. The passages for the men are, 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 are just as significant. And there's a high call, men, a very high call. And oftentimes, we're falling very short of what God has ordered. And as a consequence of that, women do languish in the relationship because the man is not living up to what God has ordained in the manner that he ought to be loving her. Rather than cherishing her and loving her as a unique helper that God has created specifically for him, they treat him like chattel. They treat him like property, like a sex object. Rather than cherishing them as a unique creation just for them. Men have bought into the stories that have been propagated in our culture, the, the, the corruption of, of women in the context of how our culture treats them, both in terms of uh, sex objects and, and, and demeaning ways. These are things that ought not to be part and parcel of a relationship between a godly man and woman. And so, men, there is no past for you. And ladies, you should be exhorting your husbands to live up to the creative mandate. Don't keep taking it from them. Challenge them and say, why, why aren't you doing these things? Where are you? What are you doing? What do you spend more, most of your time doing? What's a priority for you in the context of our relationship and with our children? Men, you'll give an account in the context of your handling of your responsibilities in the home. Now, it's not going to be a condemnation context, but certainly there's a context in which we want to do those things which are pleasing to the Lord. We have fallen very short. We have abrogated our masculinity. We have abrogated our creative mandate to be responsible for leadership, both in our homes and in the culture. We have turned it over to others that God did not intend to have. Have it. And so, men, you need to check yourselves on this. Where are you? Look at your relationship right now. Who's the spiritual leader in your home? Now, it doesn't mean that the two of you can't work cooperatively, but at the end of the day, it is the man who is the leader of the home with respect to the spiritual life and vitality of that unit. We see this, and it all lays back into Genesis chapter 2 and the role that God gave. And so when the two are working together, it's a beautiful thing. When the two aren't working together, well, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> and I fear that too many, too many daddies don't care if mama ain't happy. Nah, she can be unhappy, what do I care? Well, you need to be concerned about those things. And so, Next week, it just gets better <laughs> if you come back. Um, <laughs> we're in a church growth program here at Community Bible Church, if you uh, couldn't tell. Uh, um, just 
preaching on the, on the big topics, the ones that really build, pe- build churches. You know, it's interesting that this new Sozo church didn't start off with Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> but you have value, that's all it's important. But next week, we'll look at Genesis chapter 3. And we'll begin to see the impact of the fall. And what did the fall do to the relationship between Adam and Eve? And, and how has that then flown over into what we see today? And how do we deal with that? So what is the answer to these issues that we face as it relates to these relationships? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And, and we look to him, who is the author and finisher of our salvation, and we trust in him, and we ask him for the strength that we need to live up to what we are called to do, both in Colossians 3.18 and 19. And we ask the Lord for the strength, and we pray, and we ask for forgiveness, and we seek his guidance, and we go back to the word, and we say, Lord, I've been doing this wrong. I've been do- I haven't been doing it at all. I have usurped my husband's authority, or I have not loved my wife as I ought to, I have not recognized her unique role in God's creative order. God, I did not appreciate nor accept what you said about my responsibilities to my husband. Forgive me for that. These are things that you need to ask God to forgive you for. To not do these things is sin. It's missing the mark. So my challenge to you is to get right with God. Do so resting on the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us. If we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us that's simple. It's simple. And then as you move in a different direction, the the image of repentance to move and turn in the other direction and to go the other way and to live in the context of the glorious mandate that God gave to us in his creative order. God is so good to us. He left nothing to our imaginations or to our own subjective whims. He has laid out for us what he requires of us, and we need to lovingly be obedient to him, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and glorifying him as we do so out of gratitude for all that he has done. I trust that you'll approach scripture in that context and that you'll value it and not despise it as the world does. Let's cherish what God has done for us and praise him for it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We appreciate all that you have done for us, what you've given to us in your word. We, help, we pray, that, Lord, that you would help us to understand and comprehend um, the content of Genesis chapter 2 and the unique roles that are, that are given to each Adam and to Eve and the, and the picture that is given to us there and the facts that are presented to us. Forgive us for accepting the world's dispersions about these things. Forgive us for not living up to what you've called us to do, this glorious and, and, and wonderful position that each has been given. Help us to do these things out of gratitude for all that you've done for us, we pray in Christ's name. and Give us the strength to glorify you each and every day. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you.